Good morning. Is this on? Okay, great. Um, for my confirmation class, if you guys see me writing down, that's the notes, so you, that's one you want to write down as well, okay? I will try to stick along with what I've given the people for the worship folder. And um, you always can tell I'm preaching when I'm wearing a suit on Sunday morning. By the way, so in case you prefer Randy versus me, you have time to get out. Um, he talked last week about Heyman and the $10,000 suits. I think you remember that. This is the $89 special. So just so we're clear um, on that. Now, have you ever met somebody that was really famous? Somebody, raise your hand if you've met somebody or seen somebody that was really famous. Anybody? A good 50% of the room, I'll say. Okay, so I've met, encountered, let's say, a few people that are famous. And uh, most of them are some type of athlete people, okay? Uh, one time I ate dinner in a restaurant, and the table over next to me was Mr. Art Rooney II, who some of you might recognize as the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, one of the owners. Okay, that was pretty cool. Um, one time I was walking the streets of Pittsburgh, and Franco Harris, old Pittsburgh Steelers running back, He's like 6'3", okay, so he's big. He's walking by, standing above the rest of the crowd, you know, and I saw him as he was walking past. Um, my most recent celebrity encounter, I was in the airport in Atlanta last year, and uh, riding in one of those carts for disabled people was LL Cool J. Okay? <laughs> Pretty neat. <sighs> he's on a NCIS, CSI, something like that, one of those shows, right? But before he was the rapper, everything else. So most people know um, LL Cool J. Now, if, if you're like me, your celebrity encounters were not very life-altering. Okay. Um, the only way I can really think of if they would be life-altering is if, like, LL Cool J gave me the Heimlich. You know, or maybe he saves me from drowning, and then I would really remember that time. Um, but unless that has happened, our identities are not really built around these encounters. You know, I'm not going to be known as, hey, that's that guy that saw LL Cool J in the airport. And you go, yeah, that's me. No, you know, that's, that's a terrible identity. So lately we've been talking about these encounters with God, the people in the Old Testament that have encountered God. And Randy started by talking about, um, we went through Jonah, who's the greatest, most reluctant, disobedient missionary there ever was. Then we went on to Hannah, who was this, woman that couldn't conceive and was extremely eager to conceive and was driven to request nothing but a child from God. Last week we talked about Naaman, who was this uh, leprous Assyrian uh, military commander who didn't even obey when God, through, uh, through Elijah, told him to go wash in a river. Now this morning we're going to be talking about an encounter with God that's a little bit different from almost any encounter with God that we find anywhere in the Bible. Um, and this morning we're talking about the prophet Isaiah. Now when Isaiah has an encounter with God, this is an encounter with God. He's, as we're going to read about in just a moment, he is lifted up, or somehow he, be, he comes into the throne room of God. He gets to see God in his glory and this is an encounter that is going to forever alter not just Isaiah's life, but the life of Israel and Judah and really the life um, of us. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bible 
to Isaiah chapter 6. And if you would stand as we turn there. Uh, let me pray for us as, before we read. Father God, we ask that this morning you would make your word come alive to us, that it would speak and penetrate our hearts, Lord, that we would understand the message that you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read the entire chapter. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and, in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's inspired word for us today. You may be seated. So now that all, although Isaiah's encounter with God doesn't happen until, if you notice, this is uh, chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. So we have five preceding chapters. Um, chapter 1 we read from with our unison reading this morning. Um, although this is not till chapter 6, uh, most people would concur that this this occurs at the beginning, the outset of Isaiah's ministry. Okay, so um, this book is not exactly chronologically written, kind of like if we think about the four Gospels, um, how we can look, and although we could read them and they would seem to be chronological, if we compare Matthew to Luke, for instance, we can tell that Matthew's has been arranged for a, Jew, for a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so although it's not exactly chronological, it's still trustworthy and it is still scripture. See, he notes from the very beginning that this is taking place in the year King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah, if we, if we look at uh, 2 Chronicles 26, it tells us that he was 16 when he began to reign, and the people actually chose him instead of his father, Amaziah. 
that he reigned for 53 years in Jerusalem. It says that he was a strong king. His fame spread throughout the land. He built towers in Jerusalem, and he fortified the gates, and he commanded a strong army. King Uzziah is, is traditionally thought of as a good king. Although it says, but his strength led to pride, he grew proud to destruction. See, what, what Uzziah did was he, he himself, as the king, entered the temple of the Lord to give incense. That was the priest's job. And so as he, when he went and did this, um, the priest became very upset with him, and he angrily responds back to them. And as he's doing this, the Lord gives him leprosy on his forehead. Uh, this is all in Second Chronicles 26. So he was a leper for the rest of his life. He was cut off from the people and from the temple. Now, even in the midst of Uzziah's reign, God's people weren't exactly faithful. They had established these, these high places, um, th- these altars to foreign gods on the tops of, of high places, hills or mountains uh, in that area, and they were worshiping the false gods of their neighbors. Okay, so they saw these practices of their unbelieving neighbors and they adopted them for themselves. So the people were, they had set aside worship of the one true God to worship these idols. And that's the context that Isaiah is speaking to uh, as he writes his book and as he's recording this encounter with God. You know, so in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah sees God. Now, A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You might want to write that down. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer asserts that the most important thing about God is how they think, the most important thing about a person is how they think about God. For Isaiah, for the rest of his life, he is going to have a very vivid image of who God is. But Isaiah is surrounded by people who have given up worshiping God. They've devoted themselves to these dead gods. They've allowed themselves to be led astray. You know, they're following the practices of their, of their pagan, unbelieving neighbors. But, and yet his image of God is going to be far different than theirs. And he records it so that, that they and us can have an accurate picture of who God is. Now, how does it happen that people fall into idol worship? You know, they have a warped view of who God is. They don't recognize him as the sovereign, living, holy one, the one true God. You know, these people, they wanted a God that they can see and touch. They wanted gods that were carved out of wood and out of stone. They wanted gods that they didn't necessarily have to obey. They wanted a very tangible God. Now, even though Isaiah is living in the midst of these people, it's important to remember that Isaiah doesn't see God because he's some type of special holy person. But Isaiah gets to see God because God chooses to reveal himself to Isaiah. There's nothing special about him um, that God would, would choose, but God chooses him because he chooses him. He revealed himself to Isaiah in a way that Isaiah could see and attempt to describe. You know, in the throne room of God, we see that the Lord is sitting high and lifted up on a throne. And he's surrounded by these seraphim, which literally means burning ones. Okay, so there's these burning creatures that have six wings. 
And with two wings they cover their face, and two wings they cover their feet, and with two wings they fly. God created them so that they could cover themselves while they called out to one another. If you remember uh, Moses, when he encounters God, okay, he, he, he encounters God, and he sees the glory of God, and when he comes back, his face is so resplendent. Okay, it is shining so brightly that nobody can look at him. And he's got to cover his face with a veil when he goes to talk to his people. Again, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, he was told to what? Take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. So out of reverence and respect for God, even these angelic beings must cover their face and their feet in the presence of God. And we see that they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. A quick aside, um, as we see the word Lord in the Bible, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that word means, in Hebrew is Adonai, which means sovereign or uh, master. If you notice in verse 3, Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a different word in Hebrew, and that word is Yahweh. Okay, this is the name of God that God has given to Moses. So here, like in verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, capital L, lowercase letters. He sees the sovereign one. And in verse 3, they're calling out, holy is the Lord, all, the, all caps. So we have these two different names for God and these two different characteristics of God. You know, Yahweh was the name God gave to Moses, which literally means I am who I am or I will be that who I will be. And they're repeating holy, holy, holy. This is the, the trihagion, which just literally means three holies. Okay, uh, turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. We get an image of, again, another image of the throne room of God. This is from John. He is also taken before the Lord. In Revelation chapter 4, turn to verse 8. This is going to sound eerily similar. I wonder why. Revelation 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So these seraphim, the only time they're recorded in the Old Testament is here in Isaiah chapter 6. In the New Testament, we see them again, they're surrounding the throne of God, and they're singing out, holy, holy, holy. Remember that in Hebrew, there's, there's kind of a lack of punctuation. So that in something in Hebrew, to repeat it, again, you might want to write this down, signifies emphasis and completion. Okay, so to repeat something in Hebrew signifies emphasis. If you repeat it three times, this is completion, perfect emphasis. There, there was, um, there's a, a story in Hebrew, and they're talking about, they're di- distinguishing between pits, okay, different types of holes in the ground that you might fall into. And, and they're talking about, you know, not the pit, but the pit pit. And the pit pit is the piteous pit of all the pits. You know, that's the deepest pit that there is. So we get God's not just holy, and he's not holy, holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. This is the emphasis and the completion, the fullness of holiness rests in God. We also see this is kind of informing us now even of the, the Trinity, that God isn't holy, but he's 
holy, holy, holy. Each aspect, each person in the triune God is holy. Verse 8, he says, who shall ascend, who will go for us? You know, this concept of, of Christ and the Spirit and the Father being God, this is not a unique thing to the New Testament. But throughout the Bible, we're talking about God as in us. He's holy, holy, holy. He is holy in completion, in perfect unity. He is holy. He's the holiest of holies. He is the most holy. There is none more holy than God. You know, now, now, what does it mean to be holy? Typically, when we use the word holy, we're describing someone that's good. Although the most common phrase that, that I hear about someone being holy is holier than thou. Have you ever heard that? That's not a compliment. If you're described as holier than thou, you're described as, as being holy, being good in order to show someone up. Okay, that's not what holiness is. Holiness literally means to be cut off. It is God's exalted separateness. Okay, it, it invokes these two essential elements of who God is. Again, this is on the quiz. Um, two elements of holiness are, the first is metaphysical. And, and what I mean by metaphysical is that God is absolutely distinct from all his creatures, and he is infinitely exalted above them. And what does that mean? God is the creator of space and time. He is not bound to physical limitations like we are. We've been learning this in confirmation class, so if you want to know, ask the confirmation students about what this means. You know, God is not bound to space and time like we are, but they are creations of God. We cannot create an image of God because he exists beyond the physical realm. You know, we've got these beautiful stained glass windows here of what Jesus looks like. Unfortunately, um, that is not who God is in all his glory. And that's probably not even what Jesus really looked like, by the way. Um, but if we, we cannot see God. Now, the Bible does talk about a few people um, that God appeared to. Moses, Ezekiel, John, here Isaiah. But we don't have a picture, even though he does show himself to us at times in ways that we can understand. Again, when Moses asked to see God... God told him to go up onto a mountain. He, Moses asked of God, God, I want to see your face. And God said, look, that's impossible because if you see me, you'll die. But if you want to see me, go up on top of the mountain and I'm going to pass by through the valley. Make sure there's no people or animals there because if they're there, they'll die. And he said, and I will let you see my back. Literally translated, it says, I will let you see my hindquarters, which is kind of a weird way to describe God. Um, so he lets Isaiah, or he lets Moses see the back of his glory. Because his glory is too bright that if Isaiah sees who God really is, sorry, not Isaiah, if Moses sees who God really is, he'll die. That's, this is God in the metaphysical. He's so separate and different than us that it's impossible for us to see him for who he really is. The only way Isaiah is able to see him is that Isaiah reveals, or God reveals himself to Isaiah in a way that Isaiah can relate to us. In a way that he can relate to us. Moses is not able to fully glimpse God because God is holy. It's this distinct nature. Isaiah can't really grasp and understand the image of God because of God's holy, his metaphysical nature. Okay, this is the second element of holiness. Number two there. 
The second element of holiness is ethical, which means that God is completely separate from evil and sin. As Isaiah is standing in the presence of God, it is this aspect of God's holiness that is completely overwhelming to him. You know, coming face to face with with God, Isaiah finally realizes who he really is. He realizes his true self. In verse 5, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me, I am ruined. It, it kind of sounds a little bit hokey to us to say, woe is me. But what he's meaning is this, is this is like the ultimate sadness, the worst feeling in the world that you could possibly have. He, I'm ruined, I'm lost. Literally, this means I'm undone, I'm busting at the seams. You know, face to face with God, Isaiah has the ultimate sadness? How does that even make sense? Because you see, up until this point, Isaiah doesn't realize the full gravity and scope and weight of his sin. He doesn't understand it. But face to face with the holy, holy, holy Yahweh, he comes to the full recognition of his guilt. You know, Isaiah didn't understand who he really was until he understood who God really is. It's the same way with us. We do not understand who we really are until we understand who God really is. When we recognize God as the holy, 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 suddenly our sin is overwhelming. In God's holiness, he cannot associate with sin. In the presence of God, nothing but perfection will do, and all sin must be dealt with, and then we realize that we can't do anything to deal with it ourselves. We're incapable. You know, for most of us, if you're like me, I like to play the moral relativist game. Okay, what, what that means is that I love to compare myself to others to make myself look good. I was the master of this game in high school. If I wanted my mom to let me do something, I would always talk about my friends that were doing worse things than what I wanted to do. Never worked then. If I want to feel good about myself now, I will look at people that are living in obvious sin or doing things that are way worse than I am, and I will pick on those people, and I will make myself feel better. Does anybody else play that game? We're kind of masters of this game, the church, I believe. You know, so, so this moral relativism, well, that moral relativism does not work when you're encountering the holy, holy, holy. Look, Isaiah was living amongst this terrible people. He could easily say, well, look at those people. Look what they're doing. At least I'm not as bad as them. I don't mean you, Robert, but um, <laughs> at least I'm not that bad. But that game does not fly in the face of holy holy, holy, perfection of holy. It doesn't work. Even though Isaiah is living amongst the people that are are living in rampant idol worship, even though they've adopted all the customs of their unbelieving neighbors, even though they're, they're living this completely impure life, Isaiah does not stack up to the holy, holy, holy God. And note that Isaiah, he doesn't focus on the impurity of his heart. And he doesn't say, God, my hands are unclean. What does he say? I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Our mouth, Isaiah says this, is because our mouth is a window into our soul. Okay, you can write that down too. Our mouth is a window into our soul. What comes out of our mouth is what's already in our heart. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 15. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Do I speak life 
or do I speak death? Do I speak encouragement or discouragement? Do I speak joy or pain? Is what, when I speak, are people filled with grace or am I bitter? You know, if you want to know how you measure up yourself, just ask those closest around you about your words. It's kind of a frightening thing, actually. You record yourself for a day and listen to your words and see what they do to you. I don't want to ask the people I know because I don't want to come face to face with who I really am. But our words are a window into our soul. In God's infinite mercy, he eases Isaiah's pain by having one of these seraphim Take a coal from the altar, and he presses it to Isaiah's lips with the words, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven in the NASB translation. So before we respond to the call of God, we must first be purified by God. See, Isaiah's sin is forgiven and atoned for at the altar of Yahweh through the mercy of Jesus. We are atoned for by the cross of Christ, and we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Before we respond to the call of God, we have to be purified by God. There's this purification through through fire, this brief period of pain in order to secure infinite blessing. So there's this repeated pattern in Scripture from brokenness to mission. We saw it a couple weeks ago with Jonah, how God has to break Jonah down before he is ready to fulfill the mission that God has given him. We saw that we see this pattern with Paul, that God literally blinds him, stops him dead in his tracks and blinds him and forces him to confront the person that he really is before he is able to send him out on mission. You know, we don't come to God clean but he cleanses us in his presence. Standing before the holy, holy, holies, we are exposed. There's no hiding. There's nothing that God doesn't see or know about me in his presence. I can't do anything. When I come before the holy, holy, holy God, I'm completely exposed. He knows everything there is. But it's important to note that God doesn't use righteous people. Instead, he redeems people. He redeems broken people. Okay, we're, the next part, next one down here, is that we're destroyed in the presence of God so that we may be redeemed for the mission of God. Okay, we're destroyed in the presence of God so that he can redeem us for the mission of God. See, what, Isaiah, what God is doing here to Isaiah is that he's preparing him for a life of extremely difficult ministry. His message is going to be hard. We read some of that in, in chapter 1. There's not a lot of joy in there, especially because the people are not obedient. So scratch out all the nice, nice things that you read and just read the hard stuff, and that's Isaiah's message to his people. His words are going to be extremely unpopular. His people will be, stubb- will be stubborn. They will suffer greatly, but Isaiah will never waver because he has seen God, and nothing but the holiness of God will satisfy him anymore. He's not going to look at these people and go, okay, you're doing part of it well. I guess we'll ease up on some of this stuff. But instead, he he preaches this hard message that God has given him to an unbelieving people. But it's his vision of God's holiness that's going to guide him. And oftentimes, the more faithful we are in teaching 
the more guilty we become of hypocrisy. Okay, the more faithful we are in our teaching, the more guilty we become of hypocrisy. See, the more we get to know God for who he really is, is the more we realize our own inadequacies. The more we realize that we don't measure up. The more we understand how much the cross cost. The more we see ourselves for these fallen sinners totally dependent on the mercy of God. R.C. Sproul was talking about the holiness of God, and and he said that that because he preaches on holiness so much, the people have this unrealistic expectation of his personal holiness. He said, no, I'm actually drawn to teaching on holiness because I'm so broken. Okay, so just because we are teaching what God says doesn't mean that we're necessarily living it out, and often, the more we teach, the more we realize we don't measure up. That's where this hypocrisy comes in. That doesn't invalidate us from the, from the word of God. That does not invalidate the word that we're preaching because you're never going to have a perfect preacher stand before you preaching. And if you want a perfect preacher, you'll never step in a church. But if the word of God is taught faithfully, the more all of our hypocrisy will be exposed. But we don't teach ourselves We don't preach ourselves, we teach and preach that Christ as Lord. So let's go back to the Tozer quote from the very beginning. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He later adds this, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of God. Okay, the the essence of idolatry is the entertaining the thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Too often my thoughts of God are so very unworthy of God. I love to think about God's forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and his kindness. I know, I know we all do. But to know Jesus and to know God as who he really is, we must recognize those things, but we must also recognize him as Lord, Yahweh, and Lord, Adonai. He must be who he is, and he must be sovereign. He's the sovereign God, the one who rules forever, the one who is surrounded by these indescribable, street, indescribable creatures who just exists for the sole purpose of speaking his glory. And then we're invited, like Isaiah, to join in the worship and mission of the true God. You know, to know our true nature, we must know God's true nature. And if we claim Jesus as Savior, we must also claim him as sovereign. We must be broken in his presence so that we might be redeemed for his purpose and his mission. See, the Lord is calling out not just to Isaiah, but to us. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You know, will we know him for who he truly is? Will we see ourselves for who we truly are? Will we answer the call and will we offer ourselves and say, here am I, send me? Let's pray. Father God, you are holy beyond description. When we come to your presence, we recognize our fallenness and our brokenness. Lord, I pray that that even now you would break us so that you may redeem us and use us for your will. Lord, that we would recognize that we never measure up and we never can. That when we come on our own power, we're we're destined to fail. But Lord, we rely on your strength and trust in the power and the name of Jesus Christ. We'll know that we will be saved. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, God. Refine us. By your holy fire, in the name of Christ we pray, amen.